When I was a kid, there used to be an advert that used to come on the TV all the time. And it was, it was for the Remington Fuzzaway. Anyone remember the adverts for the Remington Fuzzaway? No. Uh, well, one person. So good, I bought the company. And it was, what it was, was a thing for knitwear. You know, you know the kind of thing where, you, you know, it takes off all the bobbles. And you've never heard of that, Andy. De- a de-bobbler. That might be a flasher term for it, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so the Remington, the Remington Fuzzaway. And, and there was a particular point in my childhood where my grandma, uh, we were trying to figure out what do we buy grandma for Christmas? And we were all racking our brains. And then somebody had the brilliant idea. That's it. She loves knitwear. The Remington Fuzzaway. And, and at that point, we didn't have a colour TV or even a VHS, you know, video cassette player. And so this was like the equivalent of buying granny a smartphone or, or a space shuttle. It was like we could buy her the very latest in modern technology. How exciting is that? And, and so Christmas comes around. And we're all exchanging presents. But all we really want to know is, what's Grandma going to make of the Remington Fuzzaway? Comes to her moment, she opens it. And rather than looking thrilled and delighted and excited, she looked offended. And we were all exchanging glances like, what's the deal with that? What just happened there? And then we, we couldn't wait. We all just quickly went into the kitchen to have a little you know, conference. Why didn't she like the Remington Fuzzaway? Nobody knew. Nobody knew. Fast forward 11 months. We're, uh, Sunday lunch, we're sitting around, grandma's come for a visit as well, so we're watching TV in the early evening, and the advert comes on the TV for the Remington Fuzz Away, and she goes, oh, I'd love one of those. We're all like, exchanging glances, what's, what's just happened there? And, and then my brother said, but grandma, we bought you a Remington Fuzz Away last year for Christmas, and this look of revelation just came across her face, and she went, That explains why it's been rubbish at shaving underneath my armpits. Absolutely true. The the point is, we're all a bit horrified now. The, The point is, what are you doing with what you've been given? What are you doing with what you've been given? We're doing a series at the moment on, on the subject of stewardship, which is really just trying to answer that question. What are you doing with what you've been given? What have you been doing with your home, we looked at, that you've been given? How are you stewarding your money? Uh, what are you doing with your children? How are you looking after your children in a way that recognises that God gave you your children and they're really his before they're yours? And, and so on and so on. And um, I think it's a very, very important question. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian here today or not. You know, and it has to do with our potential in God. What, what are we doing with what we have? I've also been thinking, and this is all still the introduction, but I've been thinking about the scandal of Christian stewardship. I've been thinking about the, how outrageous it is, the, the, the sheer volume, the scale of what God puts into our hands. It doesn't, it actually, he looks unwise. He looks, he looks like he's being careless with what he has, when he puts so much into our hands. Um, When I first met my beautiful wife, she wasn't my wife at the time, it wasn't an arranged marriage, oh hello, you're my wife. Uh, No, anyway, you know what I mean, when when I first met her, shortly after that she introduced me to her family, and 
I met her kid brother, who was at the time maybe 18 or 19 years old, and, and a boy racer, the very definition of a boy racer. He had a, a Vauxhall Nova, and it had bucket seats and racing harnesses and a massive great exhaust pipe, and he drove it like a madman. Just like, I, it, just, it, was, it was terrifying. And he took me for a ride in his Vauxhall Nova, and I feared for my life from the moment I left his parents' driveway to the moment I came back. And about three weeks after that, he, he had four of his mates in the car and they were going around the bend far too fast and he rolled the car over and wrote it off and the air ambulance had to come and cut them out. So, imagine my surprise when a little bit after that he got a job as a bodyguard and he was working for a member, a member of a, an Arab royal family and, and he, he was staying in this palatial chalet in the Swiss mountains and... and his main job was to drive around this, this uh, royal family in a £200,000 Bentley. That was his main job. Do you see, it's outrageous. It's actually scandalous what God entrusts us with, given our track record. It's outrageous. And, and uh, uh, that's uh, no more obvious, perhaps, in what we're going to look at today, which is, which is a harvest. He entrusts us with an abundant and rich and fruitful harvest. And we'll look at what that really means. So we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 10. And we're going to read from verse 1 of Luke chapter 10. In my Bible, that's about an inch from the front. If you're, watch, if you're reading on your smartphone, then it'll be slightly less. Okay, so Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord, that's Jesus, appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and don't greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what's offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And we'll just stop there. It seems to me incredibly important that we hear and believe these words of Jesus. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. Um, in fact, th- this is one of three moments in the Gospels where Jesus says more or less the same thing. And often when we find the same thing appearing several times in the Gospels, it's because it's the same thing that happened and three different people are telling you about it. But that's not what happens here, because he says it at three different moments in his ministry. So he says it when he sends out the twelve in Matthew chapter nine. He says the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Uh, in John chapter four, he's just met the, the Samaritan woman at the well and his disciples are like, brilliant, we've had that now, have some lunch. And he says, what, lunch? I mean, that's not quite what he says, but more or less. And, th- and then he says, he says, look, open your eyes. The fields are ripe 
for the harvest. It's a totally different moment. And then, of course, this is the moment where he sends out the 72. And so I think we can um, uh, assume from the fact that it's three different moments. is This is something Jesus talks about a lot, right? This is something he says a lot. The harvest is plentiful. And in fact, it seems to me that what we're seeing there is an inner part of his world. We're seeing his inner motivation for doing so much of what he's doing. He's explaining to his disciples, this is why we're always on the road. This is why we're preaching in town after village after town after village. This is why I'm sending out 12 people there and 72 people there, because there's a harvest out there. There are people out there who need to know. And so that's what we're about. That's what we're going to do just again and again and again. We're just going to get out there and tell people about Jesus. So the clear application of this sentence for us today is that there are people in your street. There are people in your village, in your town, in your city. There are people in your workplace. There are, there are many, many people who you know who would choose to follow Jesus if only they had the opportunity. The fields are ripe for harvest. Now, we might not believe that. We might say, well, no, I, I believe what the newspapers say. The newspapers say no one believes in God anymore. Or we could choose to believe what Jesus says. And one of the things I feel most excited about, most challenged about, that's happened in our church over the last few weeks, is Archie McBean. Um, you might not know. He's, he's one of the pastors of our Inverurie site, he and his wife. And uh, two weeks ago on a Saturday, they went out into Inverurie High Street which is not exactly the kind of bustling metropolis, as you might know. Anyway, they just was, were, they went out there to, tell, to, to, to offer to pray for people, to, to maybe share the gospel with some people, to invite some people to church, just to see what God would do. The first guy they met, young, young lad, just making conversation, and, and Archie says to him, so if Jesus was right here now, would you follow him? And he stopped for a minute, and he thought for a minute, and he said, yeah. I would. And Archie said, well, he is here right now. And he surrendered his life to Jesus there and then on the streets of Inverurie. The first person they spoke to. The first person. There are lots and lots of people in Kingswells, in West Hill, in, you know, wherever, just in all of these places who would love, who would choose to follow Jesus if only they had the opportunity. And so we have a responsibility, really, which is how are we going to steward the harvest? Are we going to be good stewards of the harvest? What do we do? Well, number one, step one, we feel it. We feel it. If we're going to be effective stewards of the harvest that God is entrusting into our hands, we need to feel the urgency that Jesus feels. We need to feel what he feels. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 9, in his version of the harvest is plentiful, um, it starts off with him looking out over a group of people. In verse 35 of Matthew 9, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, da 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 da. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We need to come to a place of brokenness. That word that's translated as compassion, he had compassion, isn't just a kind of, oh, that's sad. 
it's it's like his guts were just kind of torn in two. It's a, a, a kind of a physical sensation of agony in his stomach. It was like, I just feel devastated. I feel gutted looking out and seeing that they're like sheep without a shepherd and, and just saying, the harvest is so plentiful. Are we going to feel what he feels? One of the most motivating books I've ever read, and actually a book that is, on the one hand, really, really boring, and on the other hand, has shaped my entire adult life almost, is a book that was uh, reporting the results of the, uh, uh, um, a survey, a census that was taken of the church uh, in 2002. So the church in Scotland, and it was asking church leaders loads of questions. How many people came last Sunday? And, and you know, what are you doing in the middle of the week? And what age of people come to church and all of that? And really what they've been doing is they've been tracking the decline of the church in Scotland since 1984. And they just recently um, did another, they updated it, and they released the results on Easter Sunday. So in in 2002, there were 570,000 people who said that, that, who were committed Christians, regular churchgoers. 570,000. In 2016, there were 390,000. So what that equates to is a third of the church in Scotland has disappeared in the last 14 years. How do you think Jesus feels about that? And, uh, you know, the statistics just get worse and worse. On average, 10 churches a month have closed in Scotland for the last 14 years. Nearly half of the church in Scotland is over 65. 40-something percent. Jesus has compassion on them, and he says, the fields are ripe for harvest. And if we would only feel what he feels, then that has to be the beginnings of a transformation. That's the first thing. You've got to feel it. Second step, we pray it. Verse 2, he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest about that. Ask him, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. It's incredibly important, it seems to me, that we need to approach the Lord again and again. We, we bang on the door of heaven. We fast. We pray. We intercede. We petition. We say, God, please will you intervene in this situation? You have to do something. You have to do something. I love stories of revival. If you're not a Christian here or you're new to church, you maybe haven't heard that word before, except in like, you know, 80s revivals or whatever. But, but it's kind of a technical term in the church. And, and we use it for moments in history where God kind of breaks in and in a sovereign way sweeps up a whole load of people into his kingdom. And I love stories about that. The last big one in Scotland was in the Hebrides in 1949. The one previous to that in this area was in 1859 when um, there was a revival that began amongst children in Aberdeen city centre and spread out all the way through the Murray coast and all the way throughout the Shire. Extraordinary. I love stories like that. But you will be very hard pressed in any history books to find a single revival that, that happened that didn't begin in prayer. You can always draw the line back every single time to a couple of old ladies in a croft in the middle of nowhere 
clasping their hands together and crying out to God, or, or a group of school kids in, the, in their lunch break, you know, praying with all of their heart, or, or a group of pastors in a city gathering together to pray, always begins in prayer. Every dramatic change in the fortunes of the church throughout history has begun when his people pray. And we, we, we have a guy called Steve who, who is doing a PhD at the moment in, in Aberdeen University but he, and he goes to our Guilt Park site. But he used to be a pastor of a big church in America and uh, he, he's been involved with the planting of lots of churches all over the place. And two weeks ago on Sunday morning he stood up and he said to the congregation there, um, he said, what, what God's doing in our church is amazing. Um, uh, and he, he said, but it's not unprecedented. And he said, I, I, I've seen this kind of thing happen around the world, and it's lovely. And he, he used this word. He said, I understand the mechanics of it. And he said, if I could just say this, we have to pray more. Now, please, if you're waiting for the leadership team to put on big prayer meetings, there is a prayer meeting coming up, but because of the way the calendar works in our church, it's incredibly difficult to get everyone together on a night when nobody else is you know, doing anything else. It's, just, it's almost impossible. So our encouragement is really, as a church, we just have to find new ways to pray. And don't wait for anyone to call a prayer meeting. You call one. And let's just be a prayerful people. We pray it. So we feel it, we pray it. Number three, we go for it. I think this is one of the funniest moments in the Gospels. You know, it's almost, uh, um, well, there's, there's loads of funny moments in, in the Gospels. But um, it's like when he's, when he's looking out uh, over all of the wheat fields and he says, he who has ears to hear. You know, when there's ears, anyway. But the, the, that's not funny at all, is it? Uh, this moment is funny. So, so he, he's got these 72 disciples together and they're gathering around and he's saying, let us ask the Lord of the harvest. So they're all going, I imagine that he's asked Thaddeus to lead them in prayer because we never find out what else Thaddeus does. You know, he's just one of the 12, but who knows what he does. So Thaddeus, why don't you lead us in prayer? Okay, Jesus, yeah. Dear Lord, we just, we want to pray that we see the harvest, Lord, and we just want to pray that you would raise up people, you know, workers for the harvest and your harvest. So please, God, would you do that? Raise them up, Lord. And everyone's going, yes, Lord. Amen, Lord. Raise them up, Lord. Yeah, we really, we love that. Just all over this region, would you raise up workers for the harvest field? That's verse two. Verse three is, three is, go, I'm sending you. They're like, and Lord, we just want to, I'm sorry, what? There wasn't a big gap, was there, between ask the Lord of the harvest and go, I'm sending you. And the point is that we have to be willing to be the answer to our own prayers. Because that's how it works. We ask God for him to move sovereignly in an area, a region, a nation. He says, brilliant, I'm only too willing to do that. Start with you. This is um, quite a big day in the life of our church, actually. There's some big news that I can share with you today. So just a bit of backstory is that five years ago, we just decided... That, or we, we believed God was saying and we acknowledged that we should spread out. So we're meeting just in the city centre and we felt God say, this region, you know, 500,000 people who live in this region, they're now in your parish and you need to do whatever you can to reach them. And so hence City Church Kingswells is one of the beautiful expressions of that vision. A couple of years ago, God said, yeah, I'm going to stretch the parish boundaries again. 
And so it's not just going to be this region. You need to start to think about the nation. And, uh, you know, there are now no longer 500,000 people in our region. It's, it's in our parish, it's 5 million. And, and really that was a call to more sites and also to plant churches. And the great news, the really exciting news is this summer we're going to plant a brand new church. And it's going to be in Inverness, which is very exciting. The other exciting news, which is also hard, is that we're going to be laying hands on Thomas and Mary Urka and sending them off to Inverness to go and plant a church. So um, for those of you who don't know, they, they have been leading, they, they, they uh, planted the site in Ellen and they've been doing an amazing job. It's absolutely thriving. And now we're going to lay hands on them and send them off to Inverness. Incredibly exciting. We're hoping actually that a bunch of people from around the church will say, I'm going to go with them. You know, I'm going to move my job, my house, my school, whatever. I'm going to go with them. I'm going to help them to plant that church. Um, but if you, uh, when you hear their story, and we'll make sure that their story gets heard by everyone, what you'll hear is them saying, we've always loved our home city in Venice, and we've, we've always longed for our friends and, and our family and the people we know back there. To, to, to be able to come into a church like ours. And we've prayed so much that the Lord would, would do that. And there are loads of great churches in Inverness. But they were like, we've just always prayed that God would do something lovely in Inverness. And, and lo and behold, having prayed that prayer for years and years and years, they discover that they're the ones who are to go and do it. But that's always the way. It's always the way. We, we pray for the people in our workplace. And Jesus says, okay, brilliant, off you go. Pray for the people in my street or my village, my town. Jesus says, brilliant. Okay, go. I'm sending you. That's how it works. I love it. When I became a Christian in 1993, everyone was praying for revival. And it was just a big thing in the late 90s where I lived. That there was like, we're going to have early morning prayer meetings, late night prayer meetings, all day prayer meetings, all night prayer meetings to pray for revival. And I think one of the amazing things, one of the amazing answers to prayer from that season of praying for revival was the Alpha Course, where God says, brilliant, now here's a way for you to invite your friends. And hundreds of thousands of people have come to know Jesus as a result, answering the prayer that we were praying. We have to go for it. We have to go. And the last thing is, step four, we live it. In John 4, Jesus makes this horrible, I mean traumatic, just unbelievable sacrifice. Um, He goes without his lunch. That's a little joke there. (laughs) So... You know, he, he's been preaching, he's been speaking to the Samaritan woman and then, you know, it's, it's amazing, a whole load of people come, come to follow Jesus and the disciples say, Rabbi, eat some food. And after he messes with their heads for a little bit in a sort of Obi-Wan Kenobi sort of a way, like, I have food that you know nothing about. And they're like, I'm sorry, what? Uh, he, he's, he says, look at the fields. They're white for harvest. In other words, why would I stop and have lunch now? There's too much to do. If we want to see God do something extraordinary in our day, in our nation, we're going to have to change the way that we live. You know, what you see is him, him making the gospel a priority and then fitting the rest of his life around it. And in fact, that's what he tells them to do, wasn't it? In, in, in Luke chapter 10, he says, don't stop on the way. 
you know, don't stop to chit-chat with people. Just get there and do it. He says, verse 7, don't go from house to house. In other words, don't just go looking for the nicest food or the most comfortable bed. Just wherever you end up, just stop there and stop looking so that you can get on with the job. In verse 10, if you're not welcomed into a place, move on, go somewhere else. Just It's too important. The fields are right. We just need to get out there. We need to do what we can. Can you imagine what it's going to be like for Thomas and Mary to leave behind the people they love, um, their home, their, their employment, everything that's secure and safe? But when you hear them, they're like, but we just have to do it. We just, we just have to go. Our whole lives have to fit around the call of God and the gospel. And this may be the first time, I think it is more or less the first time that I've said this out loud and in public. And there may be reasons for that. But as a leadership team, we believe that God is calling us to plant 21 churches in the next five years. And that sounds impossible. It certainly sounds very difficult. Um, But it sounds like the Lord. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to to orient our lives and the life of this church around how could we plant 21 churches. We've got one, tick. The way it works is one this year, two next year, four the year after that, six the year after that, and eight the year after that, and then tick, 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 job done. But let let me just say this. It's going to cost a bomb. It's going to cost an absolute fortune. It's going to cost hundreds of thousands of pounds. And so my encouragement to you, if, if, if you're a visitor here today, or you're not a Christian, you're our guest, we're, we're delighted to have you. If you're a member of our church, if you're a, a committed member of the family, what we're saying is, this is going to cost a bomb. There's no, you know, uh, secret millionaire in our church. Uh, we pay for what we feel God's calling us to do. Oh, it's quite nice, isn't it? Just be cool for a little while. Do you not feel that? Do you feel cold? No, it feels nice, doesn't it? Uh, anyway, uh, we, we, it's going to cost a lot of money. And, and so I'm asking you, if you're a member of our church, please will you consider what sacrifices you can make and how you could give more generously or begin to give generously in order that we could accomplish everything that God's calling us to do. The standing order forms are at the Welcome Lounge. But it's not only about money. You know, when I was sat there with the leaders of the Ellen site, about 20 people in the front room, and we were, I had to break the news to them, drop the bombshell that their pastors who've helped them through, you know, have held their marriages together and, and have, have helped them to understand all kinds of things and have loved them in, in so many different situations were leaving. When I dropped the bomb, there were honestly, people were sobbing and they were clutching hold of one another and there were people running for tissues and it was a mess. It was just a mess. And I got in the car at the end of that night and I said to Taryn, We've got to do this another 20 times in the next five years. This is not going to be cost free, but we have to live it. We have to feel it. We have to pray it. We have to go for it. And then we have to live it out. But let me just finish with this. What was the um, result for the disciples? Because he said to them, I'm sending you out. This This is a very attractive mission, isn't it? I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Great. Yes. Brilliant. How do they come back? Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy. 
and said, Lord, it's amazing. Even the demons submit to us in your name. The result was even though they were sent out like lambs among wolves, they experienced an adventure of joy. That's why I've called this talk a joyful adventure. Because that's what it was, despite the cost. And then, not only did they experience joy, but verse 21, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from what the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, bless you, for this is what you were pleased to do. So as we go, we know joy like we've never known. Jesus is full of joy. And it pleases the Father. What a joyful adventure. Why don't we stand?